Hello, and welcome to Prism of the Past, a weekly series about historical events, people, and situations from the fascinating to the forgotten. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about company towns, what they are, why they failed, and if there's a place in modern society for them, because I know Amazon's trying to pop these bad boys back up in, I think, Nevada. Company towns are a topic that has always been really fascinating to me. And up until this series, I wasn't really sure how to present it since they hardly seem right for a corporate casket considering how they were. And it wasn't just one corporation, it was like a whole thing. So today on Prism of the Past, I'm happy to finally find a home for this topic and discuss it, a little piece of history with all of you. So let's get into it. First, we have to answer the question, what is a company town? To put it simply, a company town is, well, a town that is dependent on one company for their employment, housing, supplies, I think you get the general picture. See, back in the late 1800s in remote locations like railroad construction sites, lumber camps, and coal mines, jobs often existed far from established towns. So an employer would develop a company town where one singular company owned all the buildings and businesses. And I know what you're thinking, it already sounds awful. If you don't like the company or you have an issue with them, you're pretty much screwed. And you're not wrong, but we'll get into that in just a minute. Back then, company towns were aspiring utopian workers' villages. Churches, schools, libraries, and other amenities were made to encourage healthy, productive workers. Saloons and other places deemed to be negative were prohibited. Employers called it capitalism with a conscience. After all, if it kept people employed, sheltered, fed, and in the church, what justification was needed? One source says that these company towns were characterized by a paternalistic attitude towards the workers. Paternalistic means that you'd think what it would mean, that they were parenting their employees. Merriam-Webster defines this as a system under which an authority undertakes to supply needs or regulate conduct of those under its control in matters affecting them as individuals, as well as in their relations to authority and to each other. Even though a 1996 Orlando Centennial article says that this idea may seem unthinkable in present day 1996, perhaps even more unthinkable in 2021. Back then, it genuinely didn't sound like a bad idea to many. After all, company towns created bonds between employers and employees. And in most cases, owners didn't just create jobs. They also built hospitals, schools, roads, and subsidized housing. According to PBS, company towns would often claim that they were protecting laborers from unscrupulous traveling salesmen as well. Although I'm mostly focusing on company towns in the US today, this happened and is still happening all over the world. So then what was wrong with these towns? Well, although employers may claim that they were trying to be some kind of utopia, the truth is far less innocent. One PBS documentary called Slavery by Another Name is available online and watching it, the real purpose behind company towns is clear. The workers' welfare wasn't the main concern here. Instead, this time period between the Civil War and the First World War was about rebuilding the plantation economy and control. There's a lot of important context to understand about these mines and how these companies profited at that time. The thing is, black people may not have been slaves anymore, but they were not yet considered free, as the documentary states. The Old South, which was quickly becoming the New South, couldn't proceed without African-Americans. But if you had something for free in the past, you didn't necessarily want to pay for it now. It was a simple exploitative system. Mary Kirtland, a historian featured in this documentary, as well as Adam Green and James Grossman, explained that many African-Americans after the end of the Civil War in 1865 were willing to exploit themselves as many immigrants who moved to America had done. 
In other words, they were willing to work incredibly long hours and hard days if it meant they could truly experience freedom and the American dream. They wanted to own their own land, a home, and to integrate into American life. And these corporations, as we'll see, were all too eager to take advantage of their willingness to work hard. The cotton company was in complete shambles after the Civil War ended. In five major cotton states in the Deep South, nearly half of all capital and investment was in slave labor. So when slaves were freed, it hit the wealthy elite very hard. Change doesn't happen overnight, and these people didn't want to change. Even though the vast majority of whites in the South at the time did not own slaves, those that witnessed black people moving around, trying to get jobs, houses, and opportunities saw them as competitors. And that's also why the KKK started to gain the traction it did. In the late 1860s, Congress intervened and passed the Reconstruction Acts meant to protect African-American civil rights. However, some of the wealthy whites in the South found, well, loopholes. After all, the 13th Amendment said that slavery was abolished, except in the context of it being a punishment for a crime. In other words, convicts could still be made to work for free. So then what were they to do? Implement a series of ridiculous laws and convict blacks of trumped up charges, I guess? Uh, Loitering, speaking loud in the presence of a white woman, selling crops from farm after dark, walking alongside a railroad, stealing a metal ring from a fence post. All of these crimes could be followed by jail time. And it also just so happened to be that black people were committing 90% of those crimes in the South at the time. And if you can't tell here, I am not being serious. This is absolutely sarcastic. So yeah, that's how they got around their free labor loophole is they made up new crimes. And it was legal slavery or as some may call it, convict leasing. So from county courthouses and jails, men were leased to local plantations, lumber camps, factories, and railroads. The convict release system became highly profitable for the states. To employers and industrialists, these men represented cheap disposable labor. But for victims and all Southern blacks, convict leasing was a horror. Prisoners were often transferred far from their homes and families. The paperwork and debt record three of individual prisoners are often lost, and the men were unable to prove they had paid their debts and were otherwise assumed they hadn't. Working conditions at convict leasing sites were often terrible, illness, lack of proper food, clothing, or shelter, as well as cruel punishments, torture, and even death. Some even described it as worse than slavery, as quote, a man was a long-term investment. A convict could be rented for as little as $9 a month. It was never in the economic interest of a slave owner to kill their slave or abuse them so terribly that they couldn't work anymore. Their economic value protected them in a way. These forced laborers were pushed to the very limits of human endurance, end quote. African-American men, some of them only boys younger than 16 and African-American women were both utilized in these forced labor camps. In the fall, when it was time to pick cotton, huge numbers of arrests took place in cotton picking counties. More than two thirds of charges were vague, many were trivial and some were genuinely serious, but not many. Convict laborers were not uncommon in these company towns. I know I've gone a little bit off the rails from the subject of company towns in general, but I will circle back to it. And it is incredibly important to recognize that the men working in these coal mines and dangerous industries weren't always there by choice. I don't know exactly how many company towns use these convicts, and I use the word convict here really loosely, nor how many convicts they used, but there is evidence that it happened, and it seems to be a dark chapter in US history and one that's not often discussed, one that I most certainly did not know about before researching this. For example, the Encyclopedia of Alabama states, the vast majority of Alabama convicts worked for private enterprises and generated substantial amounts of revenue for the state and counties. By the 1880s, nearly all of the several thousand state and county prisoners working under the convict leasing system labored in coal mines located around Birmingham. 
Birmingham, Alabama, as I know from other sources, was crowded, plagued with the disease, terrible sanitation and TCI or Tennessee Coal Iron and Railroad Company, and they had mining towns there. Therefore, I found it really important to make this distinction that convict laborers or this legal form of slavery was a thing happening back then in company of towns, so already I could hardly call it a utopia. Now that we've got some background, let's take a look at one infamous company town to see how it worked and where it all went wrong. The Pullman Company Town. When George M. Pullman, president of Pullman's Palace Car Company, decided to build a company town, he wanted it to set a brand new standard. As a side note, these aren't cars as in automobiles, but cars as in sleeping cars on trains. So if a source says car here, what they mean is a train car. So just a heads up if that causes any confusion. But anyway, according to the Illinois Labor History Society, as it was built in Illinois, In 1880, he commenced building the shops and the town on 4,300 acres of land, about six square miles, which he had bought for $800,000. By 1892, it was valued at 5 million. Some 12,000 people lived in the town, which ran according to Pullman's rules. No liquor could be sold except at the Florence Hotel, where workers hardly ventured. There were numerous regulations designed to reinforce the town's image and industrious decorum. In 1885, the illustrious professor Richard Eli wrote in Harper's Weekly that the powers exercised by Bismarck, the unifier of Germany, was utterly insignificant when compared with the ruling authority of the Pullman Palace Car Company in Pullman. Declared one Pullman employee, we are born in a Pullman house, fed from the Pullman shops, taught in the Pullman school, catechized by the Pullman church, and when we die, we shall go to the Pullman hell. The Reverend William H. Carterwine, the Methodist minister in Pullman, characterized the town as a civilized relic of a European serfdom. Pullman didn't consider himself a philanthropist, even as these people, by the sounds of it, basically worshiped him in a weird way, at least at first. He described his intentions only in business terms, saying that he wanted to remove from them, his employees, the feeling of discontent and the desire for change. Yet Pullman wasn't exactly as good as his word. He cut wages after the 1893 recession during the winter of 1893 to 1894. And if you ask me, it doesn't help to remove discontent from anyone. The rent already wasn't cheap, at least not as cheap as nearby Roseland, but the employees couldn't even move since employment preference was given to Pullman residents. Pullman didn't set up utopia. He was effectively holding his workers hostage. And I understand the wage cut during the recession part kind of, I'm not saying I approve, but at least like that, would kind of make sense for shitty things that companies do. However, giving someone employment preference because they're in your town rather than it just being the town over, that's a little less understandable. And this is where we start to enter the questionable area of how much control is too much. It didn't take all that long after this wage cut for things to get heated. By May of 1894, only 3,300 workers were left on payroll and many of them on short hours. Pullman himself refused any action on the wage cuts and the very next day on May 10th, 1894, Pullman workers decided to strike. Pullman has been hailed as the Messiah of the new age. He introduced luxury to railroads and while he didn't invent the sleeping car, he certainly made it into the money-making machine it had been back in the 1800s. Yet after this strike, nothing was really the same. The boycott of Pullman's trains shut down many of the nation's rail lines, passengers were stranded, riots broke out in rail yards, and the price of food and other essentials across the country soared. Mines and lumber mills had to close for lack of transportation, power plants and factories were running out of fuel and resources. It was a train wreck, you could say. Sorry, I had to do it. Yet throughout it all, Pullman not only refused to listen to his employees' demands, but his attitude infuriated many. His employees wanted a neutral arbitrator to decide the merits of their complaints, someone unbiased to hear them out. 
Pullman wouldn't give them this and infamously repeated that he had, quote, nothing to arbitrate, end quote. This rightfully infuriated people. After all, Pullman wasn't just an employer. He was the town, the church, the shops, everything to these workers. And yet he turned his back on them. Acting at the behest of his attorney general, a former railroad attorney named Richard Olney, President Cleveland appointed a special counsel to deal with the strike on the grounds that US mails were being impeded. And indeed they were, because the railroads were deliberately hooking Pullman cars to their mail trains. Cleveland's choice for the special counsel was none other than Edward Walker, the attorney for the Milwaukee Railroad. Walker hired 4,000 strike breakers and made them deputy marshals armed with badge and gun. Great masses of sympathetic workers, particularly in the Chicago area, responded by attacking the trains. There were casualties, trains were torched, and 12,000 federal troops deployed, approximately half of the US Army at the time, ostensibly to keep the peace, but surely to break the boycott. Even though Eugene Debs, one of the strike leaders, as well as several other union leaders were arrested and lost, it's said that 100,000 cheering supporters greeted him when he completed a six month jail term. Though Pullman technically won, his public image was shattered. The paternalism of his company was deemed to be behind the age and a court ordered the company to sell off the model town. People hated Pullman so much that when he died three years after the strike, he left instructions that his body be encased in reinforced concrete out of fear that it would actually be desecrated. And apparently this actually did happen and the burial took two full days according to my sources. The strike may have been the massive reason why the Pullman Company town failed, but it absolutely wasn't the only reason. Pullman built a pretty horrible utopia to begin with. Workers couldn't own their own houses. They were forced to rent them. Even though Pullman was one of the country's largest employers of black Americans as sleeping car porters, black people weren't allowed to live in Pullman at all. Few people could afford the library membership fee, so it didn't exactly serve the community to begin with. And Pullman supposedly employed spies to keep watch on everything residents did and said. So plain and simple, Pullman promised utopia, but he didn't deliver. Instead, he died so hated that he had to be buried in concrete. Of course, Pullman's Towns isn't the only questionable company town that existed during these times, nor the only one that made promises for a utopia while instead exploiting those that worked there. Though I wanna talk about other companies and a variety of what these company towns looked like, many were quite similar to those of Pullman. One man had almost complete control and with citizens of these towns being in isolated areas, the price of necessities could rise and there'd be no competition around them to prevent it from happening. In 1922, West Virginia, where Coalfield Company towns thrived, nearly 80% of miners lived in these types of company towns. Segregation was the standard and violence wasn't all that uncommon either. Though many mining company towns simply closed when their mines shut down, some like Pullman Town ended a little less quietly. Where you are, anytime you want delicious chocolate, there's no need to go looking very far. Hershey's great. Cause Hershey is the great American, great American chocolate bar. Hershey, Pennsylvania is yet another example of massive amounts of control that these corporations had when running company towns. Hershey, on the other hand, learned from Pullman's mistakes, at least to some extent. In the early 1900s, when Milton Hershey began constructing his own company town near Derry, Pennsylvania, he didn't quite follow in Pullman's footsteps. He believed that directly controlling his town's housing stock was unnecessary. Owning and controlling just about everything else in the town and having his hand on nearly every dollar that flowed in was enough for him. So generous, right? Anyway, in 1900, Milton Hershey sold his successful caramel candy business to become a pioneer in milk chocolate mass production. He built a factory complex near his birthplace in rural Pennsylvania, in part because the area's dairy farms offered access to an ample supply of milk. 
Due to the remote location of the factory, Hershey also constructed a town for his employees, intending it as an industrial utopia that reflected his progressive beliefs. With streets named Chocolate and Cocoa Avenues, the new town featured a wide variety of affordable modern homes that workers could rent or own, a trolley system, public schools, social clubs, an amusement park, and a zoo. In 1909, Hershey, who was childless and had a limited formal education, established a local boarding school for orphaned boys. During the Great Depression, he launched a building campaign that kept hundreds of people employed and resulted in the addition of a large hotel, sports arena, and other public structures to his model town. However, Hershey, the sweetest place on earth, wasn't as perfect as it seemed. Executives reportedly policed employees' behavior when they were off the clock, and company managers were accused of showing favoritism. The first strike came in 1937, and though it was short-lived, it was notable all the same. It's said that after Hershey reduced working hours and stopped paying bonuses shortly after these Great Depression years, the workers arranged a sit-down strike. They were actually inspired by a recent sit-down strike in another company, General Motors, at the time. Unlike Pullman, Hershey didn't alienate these workers. Historian Michael D'Antonio says that the strike felt more like a family squabble than an angry revolution. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean the strike went all that well for these workers. The strikers made the mistake by agreeing to leave the plant for negotiations. And when they came back, 240,000 quarts of milk stood spoiling on the factory floor, having been provided by local farmers whose livelihoods depended on the factory. Opinions were divided between the unionists and those who were loyal to Hershey. On April 7th, five days later after the sit-in began, thousands of farmers stormed the factory and assaulted the strikers, a far different attitude towards than what we'd seen at the Pullman strike. As the New York Times puts it, it was a spontaneous action organized by angry farmers who administered the indignity, not to say the physical pain, of an old fashioned walloping before quickly leaving the scene to tend to their fields and cows. Some strike participants believed that Hershey itself had forced the locals to do this, orchestrating the entire mob, but regardless of who was behind the riot, it worked. The strike ended and Hershey workers abandoned hope of ever bringing a free and unintimidated union to the chocolate town. This was no model town and the strike proved that. Just two years later, sit downs were declared illegal. A few years after that in 1945, Milton Hershey passed away. It's said that he was devastated that his town wasn't the utopia he thought it was, but considering he was also described in the article as watching the strike from his mansion, it's a bit hard to feel sorry for him too. I will say that he does sound a little bit more beloved than Pullman at the very least. I mean, there's no word about his coffin needing to be encased in concrete anyway. Despite the controversy, the Hershey Company town continued. It doesn't seem like any one particular event led to its closing as the chocolate mills still made in Hershey to this day. Hershey Chocolate World, a kind of museum and interactive exhibits opened in 1973 as a replacement to the factory tours Hershey once offered. From the looks of things, the company town is more of a tourist trap than anything else now. Yet both Hershey and Pullman town, according to some sources, were closer to a slave plantation than actual towns. Hershey may not have collapsed in on itself the way Pullman did, but some say it took years for Hershey to slowly concede bit by bit and give rights to their workers, rights that some would argue they should have had to begin with. Of course, while both of these serve as reminders as to why your boss probably shouldn't be your mayor, own your church, your house, and the like, the next example we're going to get into was perhaps even more frustrating for the workers involved, and that's gonna be Ford. Another infamous company town is that of Fordlandia. What's especially notorious about this company town and many others like it is that it didn't exactly pay its workers or at least not in the traditional sense. In company towns, wages were often paid in scrip, company printed currency that could only be spent at stores and establishments owned by the company. Obviously this served to increase the dependency on workers on their company. 
Pullmantown didn't use Scrip, but many did. Some sources say that what employees used in Scrip was dedicated from their paychecks. However, as we saw earlier, without competition because of these towns' remote locations, prices for necessities like food and clothing were considerably inflated. This meant that some workers ended up owing money to the company, a debt that they could rarely settle. Yet, though Fordlandia was established by Henry Ford of Ford Motor Company, an American industrialist, the town was actually located in Brazil. According to my source, Henry Ford never visited Brazil, but he looked to the South American country to break a British Dutch rubber monopoly. Already in the early 20th century, Harvey Firestone used wild Brazilian rubber for the tires he shipped to the Ford Rogue plant, where they were slapped on Model Ts. But the Chicago tire maker was displeased with the quality of the wild latex. Asia was, at the time, the world's rubber capital, thanks to plantations started with seeds sprinted out from Brazil. In Asia, where rubber tires flourished because they had no natural pests, a cartel kept prices high. Some say it was the pricing that annoyed Ford. Others say it was simply logic. Why import rubber halfway around the globe if it thrived in the Americas? While Ford pondered the idea of a plantation in the Americas, the US government as early as 1923 was surveying Venezuela, Brazil, and Central America to evaluate their potential as rubber sources. A government report by Carl LaRue, a University of Michigan botanist, gave a high remarks to a plot of land in Brazil not far from where the Tapajos River dumps its clear waters into the chocolate currents of the Amazon. After reading LaRue's report, Ford approached Brazilian authorities and found them enthusiastic. They hoped the auto pioneer would spark another rubber boom, like the one that fueled their economy in the 19th century. In 1927, Detroit attorneys Ozzy Ida and W.L. Reeves Blakely negotiated an agreement granting the automaker 2.5 million acres deep in the Brazilian Amazon, police protection, and duty-free entry of all Ford equipment and supplies. In exchange for the free land, the U.S. firm promised to return 9% of the operation's profits to local and national governments after 12 years. The pact, signed in October, marked the first plantation attempt in Brazil. Obviously, only wild rubber was tapped. In Ford's mind, he was not only making South American money, but developing that wonderful and fertile land. Yet as time went on, Ford's excursion into Brazil makes less and less sense. The site of the town Fordlandia had been chosen on top of a rise to protect from flooding. However, this meant it was so far inland that the cargo vessel chosen to haul construction materials couldn't even pass through the rocky waters of the river until the rainy season. By the time construction did begin, clearing the jungle was excruciating work and despite his high wages, few seemed willing to take on the job. His desire to have an alcohol-free city was almost impossible to enforce and managers came and went during these early years. His 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. work schedule was also apparently unpopular with employees accustomed to slashing rubber cheese several hours before dawn, then resuming the work at sunset for piecemeal pay. Not to mention Ford's employees found the two family homes he built hopelessly hot and ugly and the idea of bathrooms repulsive. Even today, plumbing is a rarity in the jungle. Though he did not find rubber gatherers to take on his work given the pay he was offering, people began to turn on Ford all the same. After all, what's important to understand here is that Fordlandia wasn't really built for Brazil. If Ford had taken the time to learn about the culture in Brazil and how people lived, then perhaps things would have been different. Instead, the way of life that he imposed on his workers built up a lot of resentment, and even with the wages offered, they could only take so much. I'm a worker, not a waiter, a Fordlandia employee reportedly yelled in the food line one day, sparking the plantation's most notorious riot. Workers armed themselves with machetes and joined the protest against the self-serve Midwestern cuisine in a country where food traditionally was served at the table. 
They demolished the cafeteria as North American officials scrambled to the dock, jumped into boats and waited in the middle of the river for Brazilian troops to quell the melee. This reportedly took place in 1930, only a couple years after Fordlandia opened. Needless to say, things weren't off to a great start. Workers rallied and vandalized the city, destroyed generators, manufacturing equipment, and even their own homes. The managerial staff escaped by ships and were eventually able to subdue the riots, but only by appealing to Pan Am Air Magnet Juan Trip to assist them by flying into Brazil military personnel. This was a low point. Ford finally found a stable, successful manager in Archibald Johnston. He was able to turn the city around after the riots. Fordlandia slowly started to become the vision Ford had always imagined, except for one massive problem. They weren't producing rubber. Efforts to plant rubber trees were failing miserably. Author Greg Grandin, who wrote an entire book on Fordlandia, said that Ford was so distrustful of experts that he never even consulted one about rubber trees when he first made Fordlandia. If he had, he would have learned that plantation rubber can't even be grown in the Amazon to begin with, with pests, fungi, and blight are impossible to control. When you put trees close together in the Amazon, he explains, you create an incubator, but Ford nevertheless insisted. Although this aspect of Fordlandia has less to do with Ford's control and the oppression that come with a company town, it was still a massive failure. Not one drop of latex from Fordlandia has ever made it into a Ford car, and that's how pointless Fords in Denver had been. People do still live there. One 2016 article from The Guardian said that the population has actually grown to 3000 after its quiet death in the late 30s. Not to mention the invention of synthetic rubber in the 40s also destroyed any need for Fordlandia. Most residents there don't care much about the city's history. The population rising there probably is the result of economic reasons and now because of the spirit of Fordlandia. It seems the place will do better off as an average town rather than the company town Ford wanted it to be. Yet while company towns may sound like a thing of the past, they're starting to pop up in the tech world. Just as company towns were common for miners, in recent years, we've seen tech companies such as Facebook and Google present the idea of running their own company towns. According to a New York Times article in 2018, they say, John Tanane's, Facebook's vice president for real estate, is showing off the company's plans for expansion. It will have offices for thousands of programmers to extend Facebook's fearsome reach. But that is not what Mr. Tanane's is excited about. He leans over a scale model of a 59 acre site, which is named Willow Village. There will be housing there, he points. There will be a retail street along here with a grocery store and a drugstore. That round building in the corner may be a cultural center. In just a few years, Facebook built a virtual community that linked more than 2 billion people, an achievement with few precedents. Now the social network is building a real community, the kind you can walk around. It is a project with many precedents in American history, quite a few of them cautionary tales about what happens when a powerful corporation takes control of civic life. Facebook, Mr. Tanane says, has a dual mission. We want to balance our growth with the community's needs. Willow Village will be wedged between the Menlo Park neighborhood of Bell Haven and the city of East Palo Alto, both heavily Hispanic communities that are among Silicon Valley's poorest. Facebook is planning 1500 apartments and has agreed with Menlo Park to offer 225 of them at below market rates. The most likely tenants of the full price units are Facebook employees who already receive a five figure bonus if they live near the office. The community will have eight acres of parks, plazas and bike pedestrian paths open to the public. Facebook wants to revitalize the railway running alongside the property and will finish next year a pedestrian bridge over the expressway. The bridge will provide access to the trail that rings San Francisco Bay, a boon for birders and bikers. And does this sound familiar to you? 
In these early company towns, it was a movie theater and a bowling alley and a pool that made them sound so appealing. Here it's parks, bikes, paths, and a cultural center. Not to mention the whole five figure bonus if you live near the office thing reminds me of Pullman Town. What if someone can't afford that and lives a bit further away? They don't get a bonus just because they're outside company town lines? Does that rub anyone else the wrong way or is that just me saying this? I'm not saying that it's absolutely impossible for a company town to do right by their workers in these towns, nor is it inherently evil if a company owns a lot of other businesses that workers use. After all, oil rigs are similarly isolated like company towns, and it doesn't mean that oil workers are exploited because the company has a restaurant. However, it's these companies like Pullman that have taken advantage of that isolation and shown favoritism among workers that can lead to exploitation. Google has done the same. And as the New York Times article explains, as workers begin to literally live at the office, they will inevitably be more beholden to bosses who also collect the rent. After all, it is much harder to find a place to live in Silicon Valley than a new job. Turnover may slump and so might turnover in ideas. The push into the physical has also had implications for the 1.2 million people in Silicon Valley who are teachers, fitness instructors, clerks, baristas, all who hold jobs that do not come with stock options. As they inch down the clogged streets and bid money they don't have on miserable houses, they will hear the siren call of big tech. We can fix broken communities by building new ones. Trust us. Corporations are paying for things that the city or county and state used to pay for, said Cecilia Taylor of Bellhaven Action, a community advocacy group. They have a lot of money, a lot of money, more than the city does, and a lot more power. And look, there's plenty of days where it feels like we're all slaves to corporate America anyway, so why would we make it easier? If you really wanna live in a company town, you do you. I'm not gonna tell anyone how to live their lives. And frankly, I do feel that these companies do enough of that in this context. Corporate goodwill and the idea of building a utopia proves to sour over time within these communities. The more rights you give up within them, like local elections and privacy, the more benefits you'd get, like a zoo and a free junior college. It may not always have to be that way, but I don't necessarily wanna hold out hope either. In Nevada, Governor Steve Sisolak has also been pushing the state legislature to pass legislation allowing tech companies to create a new form of local government. As of February, 2021, no legislation has been formally introduced or released. However, multiple news sources and media outlets have reported on the language. Sisolak insists that it's not a company town, but these smart cities as they're being called, quite frankly, sound like the modern high-tech version of places like Pullman Town. Blockchain's LLC has a plan to build a smart city in Story County as they've purchased 67,000 acres of undeveloped land for $170 million in recent years. Hi, Casper. (laughs) Yeah, you don't like company towns either, do you? Blockchain's founder, Jeffrey Burns, told the New York Times at the time, this will either be the biggest thing ever or the most spectacular crash and burn in the history of mankind. I don't know which one. I believe it's the former, but either way, it's going to be one hell of a ride. Blockchains has more recently detailed its plans for a painted rock smart city with 36,000 permanent residents, 15,000 housing units, 11 million square feet of commercial space, and more than 22 million square feet of industrial related development. I can't exactly know how this is going to go over obviously, or how long it will take to develop. But as of right now, smart cities are new technology and plans for them across the world are still underway. If they are built, we can only hope that those in charge learn from the mistakes made within company towns about a hundred years ago. But judging on how history tends to repeat itself, I'm not exactly gonna be holding my breath either. 
But with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of Prism of the Past. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following and subscribing so that you can stay up to date with all the latest episodes. And if you want even more content from me or connect with me outside of these episodes, make sure that you click on my Linktree link in the description box. It's going to take you to a nice little easy list of all of my social media, including my Twitter, Instagram, Twitch, Discord server, like all that good stuff. So we can chat outside of here. Thank you all for making it to another episode. I love you all and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.